You guys can be seated. In case you don't know and you're dying to know, my name is Jason and I'm one of the pastors here. Kids, you can't be dismissed, school-age kids. Um, y'all are dismissed to the back. Man, it's good to be with you guys this morning. Um, I was out for a few weeks on a little study break and um, now I'm going to preach for an hour and a half. And so... Man, that's right, guys. Let's just settle in, get you a seat, get you some Coke or something, some popcorn. Let's do this. Um, uh, We're going to be in John 10 today, um, if you want to go ahead and turn there. And we're going to be in our Bibles a lot today because we're at church. And um, I am excited to be in this text. Luke preached the text of I am the Good Shepherd um, a few months ago, back in March, if you want to check it out on the podcast. But I'm going to kind of get the last half of that chapter today. But there's this phrase in John 10, 10, and you probably heard it before if you've been in church at all, and it's this right here. The thief only comes to steal and to kill and destroy. I came, Jesus came, that they may have life and have it abundantly. If you study that word abundantly, it really means like excessively. Like this excessively extravagant life found in Christ Jesus. Now, abundant life does not mean like a rich financial life because there's a greater abundance and abundance in things, correct? Because here's the truth. One day we're all going to not have things anymore, right? We're not going to have health, not going to have this great body I have right now. It's all going to go away, but abundant life is something different. And the question we're going to try to answer today is I think sometimes we can't tell if we're living the life the thief gives that still kill, destroy, or an abundant life that the good shepherd brings. What I'm afraid of is that for most of us as Christians, we are living a life more defined by the thief than the shepherd. And so for us to kind of backtrack and evaluate and walk through this and all that good stuff, we have to define two things. We have to see two things correctly. We have to see ourselves correctly. We have to see ourselves rightly as who we truly are, how we're made to be. And second, and most important, we have to see God rightly. So um, this is a little embarrassing, but but you know, it's okay. We're here together. It's a summer crowd. It's a little smaller, laid back. We blocked off your seats in the back. So you're probably mad at us, but I want us to be, you know, get close to each other. And um, so me and my wife, we still watch the show American Idol. I know it's like 2007 in our household, but we still watch American Idol. Um, You know, we laugh, I cry, she doesn't cry. It's just our household. And um, but you remember back in the day when it first came on, back in the, uh, what's his name, Simon Cowell days, people would come on thinking they could sing, right? And they would come out, they'd be so proud of themselves, have this great story, you can't wait to hear them sing and they start singing. And it goes very, very badly because they don't know themselves correctly. They don't know themselves rightly. And hear this. If you miss out on who you truly are, if you don't truly know yourself, not what the world, what the thief, what the enemy is saying about us as people, but what scripture says about us as people, it will always go badly. If we let the world define who we are and not let God and his word define who we are, it will always go badly. We must learn to see ourselves as who we truly are. But we also must see God rightly. Hear this. We will never see ourselves correctly if we don't see God correctly. For us to truly see who we are, how we're made, how we live, how to have an abundant life, we must see God as who he truly is. The most important thing in this life for you to know is who God is. There is nothing more important in this world for you to know than who God is. If I only knew that in algebra back in the day, when I was just so stressed out, I've got to know this, I've got to know this. Well, you kind of do, but more important, who is God? 
Who is God? So we're going to see who ourselves are and who God is. But to back up and truly begin to understand who we are, we're going to look at this character we see all throughout John's gospel and all throughout the gospels, the character of, of the Jewish leaders, of, of the Pharisees. Where we're at today, they're called just the Jews. Go to verse 22 in chapter 10. At that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter. And Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. And it says here, so the Jews gathered. This is the Jewish leaders or the Pharisees. They're gathered there around him. And they said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. That question seems innocent enough. It almost seems like they're seeking Christ, but they're not. And we have to kind of go backwards and pick up the context of where we are in this book, in this story, to see what they're truly doing. See, we're picking up this passage after he tells them, I am the good shepherd. See, the Jews, these Jewish leaders, this recurring character, right? We have talked about them all throughout the book of John. There is this like battle between Jesus and these leaders. And we're going to pull out today, take a little bit of a wider look at these people and what Jesus says about them so that we can see who God is and see who we are. Let's go back to John 9, actually, to to do this. And we see in John 9, this passage here, is all about Jesus healing this man who was born blind. I want to remind you, he was born blind. Now, blind means you cannot see. So he heals this man. The Pharisees see this. They're indignant. They don't like it. They go to the man's parents. Like, okay, he wasn't really born blind, was he? Well, no, he was born blind. He truly was. So they go back to the man, they're arguing with him, all this stuff, and they tell him, we are, we are disciples of Moses. You might follow this guy who healed you, but we follow Moses. And you see this great picture of who the Pharisees are, who these leaders are in John 9 verse 34, if you look at it. And they, that's the leaders, answered him to this man born blind, saying this, you were born in utter sin and you would teach us and they cast him out. Some lovely guys there, right? This man's healed and they are just indignant towards him. Then Jesus gets into it with them at the end of chapter 9 and chapter 10. And in chapter 10, Jesus calls them many things. He calls them thieves, calls them robbers, he calls them wolves. Jesus comes after these people over and over and over again. Jesus, the gentle, lovely Jesus is coming after these people. Why is that? Let's keep going. And then we see here in verse 24, they ask him, why are you keeping us in suspense? Are you the Christ? Listen, they were not asking with with clear motives and with sincerity. They wanted to trap Jesus to turn people against him and to kill him because the Christ in that time was the Messiah. And the Messiah for them was known as this man who would come and overthrow the Romans. But that's not who Jesus was or what he was doing. He was doing something else. He wanted to trip them up. They wanted to trip Jesus up. Let's keep going. Verse 25. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. He's saying, we've already done this, guys. We've gone through this. You didn't believe. The works that I do in my father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you're not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. That metaphor of the sheep and the shepherd will come back to. 
I give them eternal life and they will never perish. This is so good. No one will snatch them out of my hand. We'll come back to that, I promise. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. And here's where he gets them really upset. He says, I and the father are one. He pokes the bear. He doesn't hide it. He says, I and the father are one. Then that's verse 31. The Jews picked up the stones again. Like this is like a normal thing. They got some toothpaste, some drinks and some stones to stone Jesus again. They are after him. Listen, uh, in, in modern days, the validity of scripture, uh, the resurrection, the, the miracle of creation are the things that people in our culture can't understand or buy into today. But in this period, in this culture, in the first century, the great stumbling block for these enemies of the Christian faith was the incarnation. It, it was this idea that God would take upon himself human nature. They could not get there. For them, this made no sense at all. This was a huge scandal to the first century mind. And those who fought it and denied it were not his sheep. They were the wolves who wanted to steal and to kill and to destroy. Let's keep going, verse 32. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? He goes back to his works. Are you going to stone me for healing this blind man or healing the lame man at Bethesda? Who are you going to, what are you going to kill me for? What are you going to do today? What's the purpose of this? Verse 33, the Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy because you being a man, they could not wrap their minds around this. Make yourself God. So he answered them, is it not written in your law? I said, you were gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him who the father consecrated and sent him into the world, you're blaspheming because I said, I'm the son of God. If I'm not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand the father is in me and I am in the father. What he's saying here, you might not get this. He understands that for the first century mind, the idea of the incarnation is almost too much for them. He's saying, simply look at my works. I want to remind you, this man was born blind. And Jesus healed him. And they see this and all they want to do is argue. Verse 39, again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. They couldn't believe him. They simply couldn't see it. And the more and more you read about these leaders, about these Pharisees, about these people, is this right here. They are just blind to the truth. Just like Jesus healed this man that was blind, they were spiritually blind. Jesus says this in Matthew 23, 24. He calls them, he says, you blind guides. So I want to kind of just peel out in the gospels and ask this question. Well, what does blindness look like in these people? All right, I'm going to, John 8, 44, if you want to turn there. We get this picture of a very extreme picture of what this blindness looks like and what it reveals. In John 44, Jesus tells them, you are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. This blindness, they don't even see this. They say they're following Moses. They say they're following father Abraham. But what Jesus says, no, you're following your father, the devil. This blindness leads them to following the work of the evil one who comes to steal, to kill, to destroy, to lie, to deceive. 
John 5, 44. He says this to them. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Their blindness led them to only seek glory from people like you and me and not from the eternal father. This blindness leads them to seek secondary glory, to seek lesser glory, to seek foolish glory. It would be like LeBron James seeking approval on basketball from me and not Michael Jordan. It's a lesser, not much lesser, but a little lesser of a glory, correct? It's a little lesser, a little lesser. I can take him, at least LeBron. Um, Matthew 23, we see this blindness in Jesus in Matthew 23. If you have time today, read Matthew 23. And Jesus just um, has a fun time in Matthew 23. And pronouncing these seven woes over these Pharisees. Verse 26, he says here, you blind Pharisee, you first clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside may be clean. Woe to you scribes and Pharisees. You're like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones. This blindness leads this focus, this obsession, honestly, for them on their outward morality, their outward acts of righteousness, all the while their insides, the internal, the heart, the affection, the worship is completely dead. And their blindness does not let them see this. Look at verse 13 of Matthew 23. It says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. In their blindness, they draw others away from God's kingdom. And finally, back in John 10. And we just read this. He answered them, I told you, you do not believe. Their blindness prevented them from believing. And the question I want to answer that we're going to learn from them is to ask this question, what is causing their blindness? What is leading to this blindness? Let's go to Luke 18. You ever do that thing, like go to the Bible because the Bible's in your head when you're turning, like Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, that thing? I just did it in my head. Matthew 18, and this great story of the Pharisee and the tax collector. We will learn so much about them and about ourselves through this passage. It says here, he told this parable to some who trusted. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves. I would encourage you to underline that, who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt two men went up to the temple to pray one a pharisee and the other a tax collector a tax collector was like the worst of the worst he stole money from the jewish people to give to the romans or take for himself jewish people thought a tax collector was the worst of the worst. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Let me stop right there. We read this and we think, I would never say that. That might be true, but I'm afraid, if I'm honest with you, and, and we're all honest today, in our own hearts, we do say this, don't we? Think, we would never say it out loud. Maybe on social media for some reason, but not out loud. We would say, thank goodness I am not like those people over there. There is this thing inside of all of us. Let's keep going. He says, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, I love this picture, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. 
Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself, hear this, everyone who exalts himself, everyone who makes themselves appear more than they actually are, they will be humbled. I will tell you, the Psalms are full of this, of lament. It's this idea of why is this evil person getting away with this? Hear this church, those who exalt themselves will one day be humbled, either in this life or the next. Our God is a just God. And if we think in our foolishness, in our blindness, that we can lift ourselves up as if we are something, we will be humbled. I will tell you, that is my story every single day, isn't it? We start to exalt ourselves. You know what my biggest struggles are when I'm doing well? Does that make sense to anybody in here? You have like a few good days, maybe if you're super holy, like some of you in this room for sure, um, you have a few good weeks and you begin to do what you see here in verse nine. You trust in yourself that you are righteous, right? I fall in that trap and I fall in a pit, right? So what is causing this blindness? Hear this, the root of the Pharisee's sin is pride. It's pride. This is the original sin, isn't it? Not believing God's word that, that you can find for yourself better satisfaction, better joy apart from God, that you can be like God. This root sin of pride. But it was a pride, here's the thing, that had a veneer of being righteous. Like it has this nice sheen on it. Like it looks good on the outside. And this is the warning for us today. They trusted themselves more than they trusted in God. And, and here's the problem for us today. We swim in this culture and the current is this current of pride that is drifting us and drifting us and drifting us. So we went to the beach a few weeks ago. And uh, when you have young kids, there's no relaxing on the beach, right? And Hattie did not want to touch the sand, so that was phenomenal. That was a great time at the beach with the family. And, um, but with the boys, they love the water. They want to get in the water, and you tell the, the, the lecture about, you got to watch the current, you got to watch this, you got to do this. And you try and sit for a minute, and you just see them drifting farther and farther to a mile and a half down the beach, right? And you go, and, you, and they have no idea they're drifting, do they? This current is so strong, it's just drifting them and pushing them and pushing. And hear this, the culture today, the current of this culture pushes pride way more than we know. The schemes of the enemy are subtle, but hear this, they are working because the, the, the current of this culture says this, you are the most important person in the world, Right? Many times, even religious culture tells us that. That our life is really about us, about figuring out how we can be supreme, how we can be served. And we buy stuff and we watch stuff and we listen to stuff to find ways to serve ourselves because we are the center of the universe. Every message in our secular culture and too many messages in our Christian culture tell us that is truth. And the markers of this kind of pride are the same as they were years ago in the first century. And these markers are this. There's more concern for how we appear than who we truly are. I, I didn't even want to type that this week when I typed that down, when I wrote that down. Because that, is, that stings me. That many times I'm more concerned with how you see me, with how you think about me, more than what God is doing here and what God can see. Does that make sense? There is more of a concern for those things. There's this over-reliance and over-protection of our God money. You know, part of the problem with the Pharisees is they saw that Jesus threatened their very way of existence, which was to prey on people for religious goods. And so for them, part of their blindness, part of their pride was to protect their little God of money. 
And we can't think as we swim in the culture of the West that those lies aren't being pushed on us. That if we just had this much, if we got this promotion, if we had this house, if we had this thing, do we have this much saved for this or for retirement or for this, then it would provide something. We believe that money provides the abundant life that only God can provide, correct? What happens is we listen, follow, and worship this false shepherd. And the shepherd, the shepherd of the world, many times the shepherd even of religion promises these things that only the good shepherd can provide, right? But the false shepherd has got a really good message, a really good sales pitch. Their branding is on point. But this false shepherd here at this church, it never delivers. Have you made the purchase before on the credit card? And then six months down the road, you already regret it, Right? The couch is not that great, is it? Listen, too many times we are serving, we are following, we're swimming in the current of greed. All right, that's too much. Let's keep going. Oh, this is just how the Pharisees, they were so concerned about the application of their view and their interpretation of the law. Many times we're too worried about minute matters minute policies and politics and we neglect the weightier matter of the poor among us. Church, there's a lot for us to debate. That's fine to do that. We have the right to do that. But hear this. The church is here to care for the poor. It doesn't matter how politics work or or why they are poor or how they are poor, whose fault that they are poor. We are the hands and feet of Jesus and we see broken people, we should go to broken people. Because Jesus did not define the terms of our salvation. He didn't say, well, if you do this, 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 and this, then I'll provide for you. No, the good shepherd, without anything that I did, laid down his life to provide me the abundant life But then we, the church, because of minute details, we neglect the weightier matters of the law of justice and mercy because of silly, frivolous things. Listen, the current of culture, the current of religious culture gets caught up in all these things. But the Bible is very clear. God's heart is for the poor. And God's people follow the heart of their father. And we go and care and provide and love the poor. Period. Let me keep going. Just like the Pharisees back in the day, we want the glory and the credit. This is tough for pastors right here. Be real honest with you. Because we want to define that our church, our method, our philosophy is the way. And that is hogwash. The gospel is the way. And there are plenty of churches that we should be partnering with and celebrating with that are preaching the gospel. Amen? That the glory and the credit, all this stuff is irrelevant. There is one good shepherd. And finally, just like them, this pride, this current of pride that we swim in is making us blind and functional unbelievers. I read a quote this week, I can't remember what it, who it was or what it said exactly, but it said this basically. That in some ways, um, the church is very different than the world. But in the ways of money, of ego, of love, many times the church looks just like the world. And it's because we are blinded by the current of the pride of the world. And we see ourselves at the center of everything. And we're living a life that's basically the life of the thief. Stealing, killing, destroyed life. But this prideful mindset, it just seems so natural. It seems so appealing. I mean, it's easier. It's, it's about me. Well, of course, that sounds phenomenal. But hear this. What puts our pride in its right place is a right view of God. A false and inflated view of self will always begin with the wrong view of God. 
if we see ourselves as too much, then we have a wrong view of God. In our passage today, in this passage, we see two key points about who God is. So we looked at the Pharisees, now we're going to look at Jesus. Go to verse 30. Let me get back there. Here is a key point that Jesus makes as he's talking to them. He makes throughout the Gospels, but it's so clear right here. He says, I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. So our first main point about Christ is this. Jesus and the Father are one. Jesus and the Father are one. Listen, we know this theologically, but I'm not sure we know this in our bones. Go to Hebrews chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 1. It says here, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. He spoke through the prophets to his people. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. John 1, 1, right? In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. All things were created through him. Verse three, here's the key verse as we see the father and the son are one. He is the radiance of the glory of God. And just look at this. And the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus is the perfect image of the Father. This is huge. When we see Jesus, we see the Father. Because many of us believe the Father simply puts up with us. Like, yeah, Jesus loves us, but the Father, he just puts up with us. Listen, Jesus is the good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. And this is an exact imprint of the nature of God the Father. Did the shepherd lay down his life because his father was mad at us? Because he loves us. The answer is we have to look at Jesus' own words. Verse 30, he says that the father and I are one. When we see Jesus, we see the father. And we even see in John 20, uh, verse 30, 31, that John's gospel, he is very particular about what he puts in there. He wants to give the most clear picture of who Christ is so that we believe in him. He picks his words very carefully. And so what do we find in John's gospel? His posture, his words, his actions there is great mercy for the broken. Even with and in their sin, there is great mercy for the broken. But his harshest posture, his harshest words are for those that are not broken, even with their good works. Pride prevents us, it blinds us from seeing the Father's love. The enemy, he lies, he steals, he kills, he destroys. The enemy has lied to many of us and told us that the Father is simply putting up with us because he punished Jesus. He's saying, okay, I'm gonna punish Jesus just so I can deal with you guys because your sin is so bad, I'll just do this so I can put up with you guys. Hear this. There's that great hymn we sing, how deep the Father's love for us. The steadfast love of God the Father is the note that plays throughout all of Scripture, not just when Jesus shows up. I listened to this podcast yesterday on on being a godly father. I I need no help there. I was listening to it for other people. And he asked him, um, what is just one thing that you want your child to know when they get older? And he said... I want them to know the Father's love. And I just screamed, yes, yes. He said this phrase, the Father's love is the hermeneutic 
of the world. And what that means is, if we can understand the Father's love, it can make sense and bring meaning to our entire universe. But hear this, if we don't understand, if we don't rest, if we don't believe, if we don't trust in the Father's love, we're going we're gonna to stay blind and stay blind and stay blind. And we see this love most clearly in Jesus and him laying down his life for us. But hear this, we see this love also in the gift of what he gives us through laying down his life. Look at John 10 again in verse 28. He says, I give them eternal life. Eternal means forever. And they will never perish. And then listen to this good news. No one will snatch them from out of my hand. Once again, verse 10. He came that they may have life and have it abundantly. The second thing we learn about God and Jesus in this passage, this right here. He came to give abundant, secure, eternal life. He came to give abundant, secure, eternal life. Abundant life. I, I think for those of us that have grown up in a... Um, how do I say, a, a Baptist background. I, I'm in a Baptist background and I think many times we stifle the abundant life. We make excuses for the abundant life. Listen, Jesus saved you to walk in joy, right? Not just give us stuff, but to actually walk in joy. That when we sing about this God, this Father's love, it should provoke emotion. I know that's like almost scary, but do we understand the father's love for us? Listen, when, when Tracy walked down the aisle, when we got married, I cried, right? Because she was beautiful because I loved her and I hope she loved me. She said, yes. And so there is this idea that I was moved to emotion by the beauty of this love. How much greater is the father's love for us? It's a love that if you go bankrupt tomorrow, you still have abundant, secure, eternal life. It's a kind of love that if you get cancer tomorrow, you still have abundant, eternal, secure life. No one can snatch it away. Amen? Amen. No one. And I hear uh, dads talk about their, their daughters all the time. Well, no one's going to touch my daughter. Well, you, you can't promise that. But, but no one can snatch you out of the Father's hand. He holds the universe by the words of his power. We can't touch that God, can we? We can't touch that Father. And this word, abund like I said, this word abundantly almost means excessively. It's as if Jesus is saying this, that the lives of his sheep will not just be middling. I read, read it this week and I wrote it down and I just was convicted. Is my life a middling life? Is my life of a let's just get through this day kind of life? It's like, oh gosh, that's rough. Jesus doesn't promise us that our lives now will be pain free. No one who follows this good shepherd who gives up his life for the sheep can expect an easy life, but everyone who does follow him is promised a full life. Better to live fully, even at great cost, than to never live at all. It's an abundant life, but it's also a secure and eternal life. J.C. Ryle says this, Christ declares that his people will never perish. Weak as they are, they will all be saved. Not one of them shall be lost and cast away. Not one of them shall miss heaven. If they err, they shall be brought back. If they fall, they shall be raised. The enemies excuse me, of their soul may be strong and mighty, but their Savior is mightier. And none shall pluck them out of their Savior's hand. Jesus and the Father came to give this abundant, secure, eternal life. Imagine someone coming to you this afternoon, knock on your door and say, Mr. So-and-so, Mrs. So-and-so, 
guess what? I today am going to give you the most abundant life you can imagine. Just try to imagine it for a moment. The most abundant, full life. It is yours today. And guess what? Not one person, not one creditor, not one thief can take this abundant life from you. It is secure. No one's going to snatch this away for you. But, but there's more, right? There's also this life is eternal. It's never going to stop. This abundance is never going to end. It's going to go and go and go. And they say, well, do you want this life? And we'd all, with a resounding voice, would say yes, right? And so the question we have to ask is how? How do we walk in that abundant life, in that eternal life, in that secure life? And and most of you have been in church for a while. and, And I feel like we know the answer on some level. But this is where we get tripped up. We might know the right answers, but many times we get tripped up here. So we've looked at the Jewish leaders. Uh, we've looked at God. And we're going to end our time today looking at ourselves and how we should respond to God and what our proper response to God is. So today we looked at these biblical accounts of the blind man, right? Been blind his entire life and Jesus heals him. We look at this account of the tax collector who's done horrible things, but admits they're a sinner. And then we see Jesus uses this metaphor to describe us as sheep. Sheep are not impressive animals, just so we're clear. They are not the lions of the animal kingdom. They are sheep. What do all of these things have in common in how we see ourselves and how we're to come to God? There's one thing. Humility. Humility. St. Augustine was asked, what are the top three virtues of the Christian life? What are the top three things that Christians should walk in? He says this, number one, humility. Number two, humility. Number three, humility. Listen, we will never graduate from humility in the Christian life. Once a sheep, always a sheep. But here's the good news. You can be a sheep with abundant life. Or you can be a sheep who pretends to be a wolf and lives not a full life, that lives a middling life, that lives an angry life, that lives a deceitful life, that lives an apathetic life. But If you see yourself with humility, and I'll tell you this, as you truly are, there is freedom in that. Many times, I'll tell you this, I'll confess to you guys, don't judge me please, but as a pastor, you think, oh, I got to do this and do this. And I was gone for three weeks and guess what? Nobody died. No one's left the faith that I know of because I'm a sheep. Ultimately, my power is in obedience and following the shepherd. But many times we just don't want to be sheep. We want glory, we want power, we want all these things. Listen, fake religion does not stay humble. But here's the key for us big point we must stay humble. Well, what do I do on Wednesday, Jason? Stay humble. Well, what do I do next year? Stay humble. Well, what do I do in a month? Stay humble. Listen, the Christian faith is a humbling faith. Stay humble. See, fake religion tricks us into fake brokenness, false piety, false humility. And what scares me is how much good I am, how much good we are at being unbroken religious people outside of the cup kind of people. And there are plenty of honestly, unhumble, I will say this, unsaved people doing good things that one day, even as Jesus says, they will not enter his kingdom. We cast out demons, 
I do not know you. We must stay humble. Staying humble is all about keeping a right view of ourselves. We are not the overcomer. Christ is the overcomer. We are not the provider. Men, hear this. You are not the provider. God is the provider. We are not the shepherd. Christ is the shepherd. We are simply the sheep. A right view of God leads to humility. Listen, if you are broken today, if you are humble today, run, live life with joy, shout, scream, and cry because the Father has saved you. He loves you. But hear this, if you are not broken today, if you're walking in pride, be very, very afraid because the Father's wrath will come for you. Hear that. If we are broken, his love redeems us. It redeems us and it changes us. But if we want to be the shepherd, if we want to be a wolf, he will come. So the role of the sheep. What is our role? To stay close to the shepherd. We stay humble and we stay close. The role of the sheep is to stay close to the shepherd, to listen to his voice, follow his lead. This, hear this, this is the only way to abundant life. This is the only way. It's the only way. We must stay close. I was talking to Jeff earlier. And he listened to this sermon about the voice of the world that lulls us to sleep and how the enemy has given us this pacifier of binge watching, this pacifier of social media and just sticking it in our mouths and just lulling us to sleep. And we're listening to this voice of this false shepherd, of this fake shepherd, of this hireling over and over and over again. And we're living middling lives and we're asking ourselves, why? Why is my life like this? Because we're listening to the wrong voice. There is one voice that brings abundant life. And it's the voice of the one who laid down his life for you. It's the voice of the good shepherd. So how do we stay humble? How do we stay close? Because here's the key here. Many times we will humble ourselves, but then after we humble ourselves, we stray away from the voice of the shepherd. And when we stray, we become prideful. When we stray, we stop listening. When we stray, we don't hear the voice of our shepherd. We hear other voices that are telling us we're the center of this world. So we must stay humble. We must stay close. How do we do that? There's one habit just finished his book on the power of habits. And there's this phrase in there called the keystone habits. It's this idea that if you can walk in this one habit, it will unlock all kind of other lesser things in your life. So what is the keystone habits of staying close and staying humble? It's this right here. Read, listen, apply, and pray. Hear this. If you are following the shepherd, you want to humble yourself and follow the shepherd as a sheep, the way to do this, you must stay close and stay humble. And you do that through reading his word. He has spoke the shepherd, hear this, the shepherd has spoke through his word. This word is a miracle, a miraculous gift to us, his people. We must hear this. Read his word every single day. That sounds most like pastor thing ever. You must, as the sheep, listen and read his voice every single day. But you can't just read. I think many of us have learned we just read the way we read Facebook. We read it. We absorb it. We might even try to do something, but we just read. Here is the next step that is so key. We read, but then we listen. Because listen... His voice is not dead. It is living and active. It's a living and active voice. So we read his word and then we stop and meditate and listen. And we ask the spirit 
to illuminate, to reveal, to convict, to direct the clear voice of God. We read, we listen, and as the Spirit directs, we apply. We apply. This is not huge fireworks every day. Many times it's simply, God has served me. I'm going to serve others today. We apply and follow the voice of the shepherd. Then we pray. We just pray that God moves in our hearts, others' hearts, our neighbors' hearts, those people around us. We read, we listen, we apply, and we pray. I'm going to end today going to Psalm 9. It's the last thing we do. Psalm 90, verse 12. It's this great picture of the life of the sheep. And what abundant life looks like. The psalmist says in verse 12, teach us to number our days. This is staying humble. We are finite. We are finite people. That way we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. And here is the staying close. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. That we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Every day the sun rises. Every day the shepherd will satisfy. If we'll humble, stay close, and listen. Let's pray. Uh, dear Lord, thank you for um, the message of your gospel. That you have come to not bring a middling life, but to bring abundant life. Father, let us as sheep today listen for our shepherd's voice. And let us follow the voice of the shepherd today. That's it. Let us follow the voice of the shepherd today. You are so good to us, Lord. Let us come to you in humility and receive your love and receive salvation today. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. And now we respond with communion, which is this great picture, right? of the shepherd laying down his life for the sheep. If you're new here at Covenant, um, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're, if you're a follower of the shepherd, this is for you. It's not just for our church. It is for the church. So in a moment, I'm gonna invite you to come to take the wafer, to take the juice, and to partake as you're ready. But before you come, I would encourage you to take time to sit and to listen to the shepherd's voice. If you want somebody to pray with, I'll be in the back to pray with you, but come when you're ready.